I want to bring some, some just conclusion to our series on gratitude. Began that back in November. And just have a concluding thought tonight about the gift of gratitude. So Philippians chapter 4. Let, let me read two verses in, in chapter 3 very quickly. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. In verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Now chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight, the chance to be together. Lord, for the music, the day we've had. And I pray, as we look at this thought tonight, that you'd help us um, in all things to give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed before when life's good that gratitude comes easily? Um, something good happens to you, and it's easy to say thank you. It's easy to write the card in response. It's easy to have a joyful spirit and heart about things that happen. Um, it's not hard to say thank you when you come home and tell your wife. you got to raise at work, right? That'll put a big smile on your face. Or when you go to the doctor and you're expecting a bad report and you get a good one. Or maybe the birth of a healthy child. And boy, it just can fill us with warmth and with joy and with gratitude. You fall in love Maybe a special moment with friends or loved ones. Today someone handed me a Christmas card and it didn't have any glitter in it. And that made me grateful. And, uh, and then it also had a check in it too. So two bonus, bonus points there, you know. It just, that, is, that just makes you smile. It makes you happy. Um, and it didn't have any glitter in it. Did I mention that it didn't have any glitter in it? My wife likes glitter. You know, when we experience these things, we are naturally grateful. Gratitude is easy. It's effortless. We don't have to work at it. You would have to be a real curmudgeon if you can't smile, if you can't be happy and be grateful when life is really good. And somebody gives you a check or someone expresses some type of love to you, it's easy to say thank you. But automatic gratitude exits when life isn't easy. Suffering Difficulty, sorrow, it robs us of easy gratitude. When life falls apart, joy and expressing gratitude do not come naturally. And if we want to have gratitude, and if we want to have joy, even when the chips are down, when life is hard, when we don't understand, when God's working or doing something and we aren't aware of it, or when our bodies are frail and sick and aging, and if we want to still have that kind of gratitude, then we have to fight against our natural t tendencies. Tendencies like anger, tendencies like resentment and sullenness and depression and self-focus. These are unwelcome guests of our heart. And sometimes, if we're not careful, they don't just become guests, they become permanent residents. And it is our responsibility to root them out and to remove them. But it is only done through great effort. In Paul's letter to the Philippians over 16 times, he mentions these ideas of joy. He mentions these ideas of rejoicing. It's a fun book to read. It's a fun book to spend time thinking about. But those words did not come cheaply to the Apostle Paul. Our guide in Corinth when we were there walked us all over the um, old ancient city. Uh, it was truly amazing. 
And toward the end of the tour there in Corinth, we found ourselves in the city square and in front of the Bema seat. And so, Andrew, if you'll show that photo, I think that's what you had up there earlier. Pastor mentioned that this morning, that we will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. And again, you have to remember, the New Testament was written in the Greek language and with Greek ideologies. And so, as you come into Corinth, here's the Bema seat, uh, maybe. Is there anybody up there? Okay. Andrew, show that picture. Thank you. Okay, so here's, here's Corinth. This is the remains of the city of Corinth. Um, go ahead and go to the next picture, Andrew. Here is some of the city square there. And then the next one. This is the Bema seat. This is where judgment took place. This is where the Apostle Paul would have st- stood on more than one occasion. Go to the next, the next picture there. Um, this is a picture of the Bema seat there in the background. And then in front of the P- Bema seat... There's that, that block, and it's called a punishment block. And just leave it there for, for a second. If you were found guilty of a crime, there, were, there was a way that had two handles, and, and you would have been tied onto the block in a position like this, fully exposed. And you would have been set there. And then you would have been beaten. And our guide said that those who did the beating were often hardened Roman military generals and personnel who had retired into public office. And they were the ones who would administer this beating. When someone was beaten, he would scream, he would beg, he would plead for it to stop. Written history says that all dignity was lost in this moment. Around the prisoner, around the person being beaten would begin to be a pool of blood. But the pain was so intense and it was so great that their faculties would be lost and they would lose control of their bowels. And so here in this, in this pool of blood would also be feces and urine because of the bowel movements being lost. The Romans wanted to set an example. Don't break the law. And they did. It was said that many people would be beaten so hard that frequently their rib cages would be showing when they were removed. Many died. But those who did not die had to bear the shame of being the guy that was beaten, of being the guy who screamed out, please stop, of being the guy who was humiliated. And our guide said that humiliation was often far worse than the beating itself. Paul was beaten by the Jews 39 lashes five different times. He was stoned by the Jews But by the Romans, he was beaten with rods, as described tonight, on the punishment block, three times. How the man lived through that is beyond our comprehension or understanding. We cannot overestimate the toll that this kind of beating took on a body. And Paul endured this three times. But to Paul, it was worth it. And in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, he says, what things were gained to me, he says, those things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Towards the end of Paul's life, his body was literally falling apart. Physically, the man was broken. 
as he writes these verses in chapter 4, for us to express gratitude in all things, for us to have joy and rejoicing, accompanying those same verses, he's talking about suffering. This is the man writing this from, as he writes these words, he's in a Roman prison with an abused and a broken body. And he's talking about the importance of gratitude and joyfulness and the importance of both. Depression, anxiety, pain, isolation, deprivation, suffering, loneliness. These things were a daily part of Paul's life. Yet he always found his way through all of that back to the theme of joy and back to the idea of rejoicing in large measure because he made a conscious decision that it didn't matter what his circumstances were and it didn't matter if he was tied over the punishment block before the bean seat with his rib cage exposed. It didn't matter what was taking place in his life. He was going to be grateful and he was going to find what was good in life. See, Paul's joy wasn't found in how much vacation time he had. It wasn't found in how much money he had in his retirement account. It wasn't found in his health and his body. It wasn't found in how people treated him. Paul's joy, his rejoicing, was found in the presence of his Savior and Lord. And uh, so I didn't think I'd get emotional here, but I was standing in that place right there, taking that picture before the beam of seat. And it was Jesus Christ who, for Paul and for me, went to the punishment block. And he was beaten. And he died. And he suffered so that I didn't have to. And Paul said, you know, I'll, I'll gladly take this physical beating because Jesus took the wrath of God so that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I don't have to experience the wrath of God. And, uh, and so, and not just that, but from the Bema seat, it's not that, that just that Jesus took our place. He offers reward for the good we've done and, and a crown of righteousness. And then it numbs your mind when you're standing there. And I had sunglasses on and the guide is talking and I just start weeping. You know, I I'm like stand at the back of the crowd trying to hide it. And then Derek says, hey, Daniel, stand over there and get, take a smile for a picture. You know, like I can't stop. Leave me alone. Let me let me just meditate here for a moment. See, Christ took upon him the sin of the world. He endured the full wrath of God. And Paul was grateful that he only had to stand before human judges and not the judge of the universe. And it was his identification in Christ and on the cross that made the suffering bearable. So I want you to know tonight, it may not be a punishment block for you and I, and our rib cages may not be showing, but you and I have suffering. Suffering is an unavoidable part of the human existence. And if we allow it, it can be a meaningful component of our lives. You can't avoid suffering. 
can't get away from it. Um, our bodies are frail. It's a little bit of a morbid thought, but we're all going to die. Like everybody in this room, minus Jesus returning. But he may or may not return for decades or centuries. We, we don't know. And so we're going to die. We're going to suffer. We're going to get sick. We're going to get lonely. We're going to struggle mentally, emotionally, physically, in every capacity. But our attitudes towards that suffering, it matters. See, we can get upset at suffering. We can get bitter and resentful. We can ask questions like, why me? We can sink into depression that comes from the self-loathing accompanied by suffering. We can react with passivity and, and resignation. Or we can change our outlook and see suffering as an essential component for growth in our lives and allowed by the Lord. We can see suffering as a tool that God uses to change our perspective and our outlook, to align our thinking, to guide our hearts towards that which matters most. Trials and adversity can produce positive character change. It did for Paul, and it, it does for us. Deprivation, sorrow, and loss create new perspectives for all of us. And I want to make this point tonight. We must learn to separate suffering from expressions of gratitude. See, life's good, and so we're grateful. Life's not good, and typically what happens for most of us is we're not grateful. But it doesn't have to be that way. And Paul says it doesn't matter if life's good, and it doesn't matter if life's not good. It doesn't matter if I'm surrounded by friends in a meal or if I'm over the punishment block being beaten. He says, in all of these things, I can find things to be grateful for. My gratitude is not tied to my circumstances. And that's the challenge. And like Paul, we have to learn to separate how we feel from expressions of gratitude towards others in our lives and towards our God. We have to change our viewpoint of suffering to align with Jesus and to align with the Apostle Paul. But instead, we often, too often, allow our gratitude to ride the wave of our circumstances. And we have to choose to have a stance towards gratitude that says, whatever takes place, I can be grateful. Because a grateful stance towards life is immune to circumstance. This was the stance of Paul. This was the stance of Job. He lost everything. His health, his children, his loved ones, it all evaporated on him. But he still maintained a, a disposition towards God of gratitude. I can be, if I choose to be, grateful in all things. And when we decide we are going to divorce our gratitude from our circumstances, we take the self-destructive emotions that we feel, the things that hurt us, the things that make everything so much worse. And instead, when we look at the bad and we say, I'm going to find the good, and I'm going to see the areas of that I can be grateful for, and I'm going to be grateful that even though I'm walking through this, I have a God beside me. And when we get to that place in our life, all of a sudden, those negative emotions get transformed. And all of a sudden, they're replaced. Into, and they permit healing, and they permit restoration. See, a grateful person will tend to see good in situations and notice less of what is bad. 
But ungrateful people tend to see bad. And so if you look at a circumstance and all you can see is negative, and all you can do is complain, and yet someone else comes alongside and they see the good, typically this person's the grateful person and this other person is the ungrateful one. Those with the virtue of gratefulness will become grateful for the way painful circumstances allow growth. And this is where Paul found himself. As tragedies transformed into opportunities for Paul, he began to heal. And he had a fresh perspective on life. And we can too. We, by God's grace, will never suffer to the extent that Paul did. But we suffer. And Paul said, look, this suffering and this thing, these things I don't like. They're creating other opportunities for me to share the gospel, to see the Lord in a new and fresh way. And that's what the man did. There can be a disconnect between your attitude and your life circumstance, but you're going to have to make it so. You're going to have to make that choice. Eli Weisel, and I hope I'm saying his name correct, he was a Holocaust survivor, writer, Nobel Peace Prize recipient. At 15 years old, he was arrested by the Nazis in his Romanian village. He was transported by cattle car to Auschwitz in the spring of 1944. He suffered humiliation, loss of faith, family, and finally the loss of any semblance of humanity. He experienced the great shame of caring for nothing except his own survival, and this is when, and this is when daily survival brings starvation and wretchedness and bitter cold. Somehow he survived the death camps and was liberated in April of 1945. A few years ago, he was on Oprah Winfrey's show and she was interviewing him and she asked him whether after all the tragedy he had witnessed, he still had a place inside of him for gratitude. And I want you to listen to what this man said. He said, absolutely. (laughs) Right after the war, I went around telling people, thank you just for living. Thank you for being human. And to this day, the words that come most frequently from my lips are thank you. When a person doesn't have gratitude, something is missing in his or her humanity. A person can almost be defined by his or her attitude toward gratitude. For me, every hour is grace. And I feel gratitude in my heart each time I can meet someone and look at his or her smile. Here was a man who wasn't just grateful to be alive. He was grateful you're alive. In measurable suffering and loss. And all he could do was look at people that smiled and say, thank you for being alive. Thank you for being human. Thank you for smiling. In one of his writings, he wrote this statement. No one is as capable of gratitude as one who has emerged from the kingdom of night. That's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? The kingdom of night. Few of us have or ever will experience what Paul suffered or what this man suffered at the age of 15 years old. But anyone who's ever suffered has dealt with their own kingdom of night. Many of you know what that's like. You've been in your own kingdom of night. Kingdom of night represents the circumstances that seem to trap us. They ensnare our hearts, our minds, and our attitudes. They keep us awake at night, fretful and fearful. He would continue in his writings, Weaselwood, to 
build on his prison experiences. And he would say things like, people build prison walls in their minds that keep them captive. He said their thoughts are lined with barbed wire. No one else is creating the prison walls. They are. We do. Create these prison walls and our thoughts are are barbed wire and keeping us in internal judgments and criticism become the patrolling guards. And you have to escape that prison. And so he offers a key. And it's the key of gratitude. Because it will unlock any door and set you free. And so he continues in his writings. And Weisel says, this simple process has the power to transform your life. If the dust settles and you're still standing, there's a reason for it. Now start walking. You can leave the kingdom of night. You can start walking toward the gates right now. He said, your freedom begins with being thankful for the small things, gaining courage and strength to reach the big things. Here is a man who suffered in in ways we can't even begin to imagine tonight. But he found things to be grateful for. And it set him free. And it can set you and I free too. It set the Apostle Paul free. He went from suffering and the loss of all things to saying rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and thanksgiving, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds, which is in Christ Jesus. We need to take the key that God has offered us as a gift and unlock the door of gratitude in our lives. Ultimately, gratitude is determined. It's a determined outlook and shift in our thinking, and it has to be determined in our hearts. But there are disciplines that help us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hasten, and I know the hour is late, but let me give a few. And, and there are books I would happily recommend to those that would like to explore this further. The first one is simply this. This is documented by psychologists, by the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. We have to inventory our gratitude. It has to be inventoried. Write down the things you are grateful for every day. And again, there is so much research that has gone into it. But translating thought into word allows us to organize our thoughts and facilitate integration and accept our own experiences and put them into context. We begin to see the meaning of what is happening in our lives when we inventory gratitude. Something we have done in our family and continue to do at mealtimes is to say, list three things you're grateful for and why. And you can't just be the food, Dad. It doesn't work. It has to be more thoughtful than that. It has to be something different. And you have to give a reason. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it changes your attitude. It changes the atmosphere in the room. When you inventory your gratitude, even the bad things that happen, we begin to look, at, look for the good in them and bring a new perspective. And we see the redemption of God's work in our lives. We literally magnify and expand the goodness when we inventory gratitude, it's so important. We need to be purposefully thinking th- thoughts that are full of thankfulness and gratitude. Awareness is a precondition for gratitude. There is a language of gratitude and there is a language of ingratitude. And the language of gratitude, words like this come to mind, gifts and givers and blessings and blessed and fortune and fortunate in abundance. That's the language of gratitude. That's how happy people think. Same circumstances, same person, that's how they think. 
But the language of ingratitude goes like this, deprivation, deserve, regrets, lack, need, scarcity, loss, all the things you find on, well, every platform on the internet and every media outlet. It's the language of ingratitude. We are what we think about and we need to think grateful thoughts. And so Paul says right after he challenges us to be grateful in verse 8, he says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true. And now he's going to tell us what to think about. Saying they are honest and just and pure and lovely and good, report there being virtue, there being praise. Paul says, think on these things. We need to inventory our gratitude. We need to think grateful thoughts. And Paul understood that, and that's why he went there. And then we need to grow, go through the motions, and I'm almost done. Fake it until you make it. There are so many studies done on this, and there, there's a ton of psychological evidence. People who are frowning and unhappy, extensive studies where they would tell, they put a pencil in their mouth. And it, when you put a pencil in your mouth, it forces you to smile. And they would literally do these studies on people. They just put a pencil in their mouth and the faces, the, the muscles in their face had to smile. And, and, and then they would measure their spirit and their attitude and it was exponentially better because they bit on a pencil. And I'm not advocating walking around with a pencil in your mouth, all right? The point is this, you can fake it till you make it. It'll work. When we behave a certain way, our feelings fall into place. Look, when we attend church, we begin to believe and trust God more because we're here. And so you may walk in a skeptic or you may walk in in a place like this and think, well, I think these people are all fake. But you sit here long enough and you force yourself in to be on time and to participate and to serve. And all of a sudden you begin to love and you begin to understand and you begin to believe. When we volunteer to serve, we become more generous. Marriage therapists will tell spouses consistently who have lost love. Couples come in all the time, I've lost love. And, and, and a lot of the, the counsel will always go like this. Well, then pretend like you like the other person. Just pretend. Why? Because going through the motions triggers emotion. Fake it until you make it. It works. Our behavior sets the stage for, for, uh, for emotions to reinforce that behavior. So do it anyway. Well, I'm not a grateful person, and I, I tend to see the negative. I'm not very happy, and I, and I just frown a lot. Fix it. Well, I don't, I'm not grateful. Okay. Pretend like you are. Pretend like you're grateful for something. Well, I don't love my spouse anymore. Pretend like you're grateful for them. I don't like to smile. Pretend like you're smiling. Emotion and thought follows our behavior. See, gratitude is a new way of seeing life. It's a stance. It's a posture. It's a way of positioning oneself. You don't have excuses to be ungrateful. You want to compare your life to the Apostle Paul? Or even Mr. Weiss? Really? You don't have an excuse. We have none. We can be this kind of person. G.K. Chesterton wrote, the test of all happiness is gratitude. Happy people are grateful people. He said, children are grateful when Santa Claus puts in their stockings gifts of toys and sweets. Could I not be grateful to Santa Claus when he puts in my stockings the gift of two miraculous legs? We thank people for birthday presents. Can I thank no one for the birthday present 
of birth. <laughs> See, it's perspective. You have something always to be grateful for. Tonight I'm going to challenge you with this. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know the health of your body. I don't know your economic positioning. I don't know what your relationships are like in your family, with your loved ones. I don't know your standing at this church. Well, some of you I do, all right? But I don't know all the details here. I don't know what hurts your heart. I don't know what's in your craw. I do know this. You can be a happy person. That no matter what's going on in your life, you can be grateful, but you're going to have to start working at it. You're going to have to start inventorying your gratitude. You have to. You're going to have to think thoughts, better thoughts, intentionally. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to be the kind of person that God asks you to be. You're going to have to think the right thoughts, do the right things, determined to have joy in your heart, and you're going to have to go through the motions. It will come, but you have to work on it. For some of us tonight, our self-loathing and our depression and our anxiety have become permanent residents in our hearts. You have to get them out. You have to ask God for His grace. You have to come to Him and say, God, this isn't okay. There's too much good in this world and in my life. If the Apostle Paul, who suffered the loss of all things, can find joy and rejoicing and write an entire book out of, about it with a broken body from a Roman prison cell, what excuse do I have? So let's go to Him tonight and let's ask Him for help to separate our gratitude from our circumstances and say, God, no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to have a disposition and a stance and a spirit of gratitude. If we would do that as a church family, as individuals, as leaders in the home, as spouses, as young people tonight, I'm going to tell you, this will be the happiest place on this planet. It already is. But there are no limits to what we can do here. And the joy that God can place in our hearts and the impact that we can have on every person that walks through these doors. You don't have to get beat by rods. You don't have to stand on the beam of seat before Jesus Christ and be judged for your sin if you've put your faith and trust in Him. Instead, He offers a crown of righteousness to those who love Him. So how about we find joy in that tonight, if nothing else? How about we find joy in the presence of people in this room who actually care for you, whether you believe it or not? They're here, and there are smiles all around. Let's inventory that tonight. Let's take account and say, God, thank you. And let's be the kind of people he expects us to be. Let me ask you to stand tonight.